our biggest challenge is that still about half the country hasn't heard of us or hasn't hasn't heard of us unprompted. So what we're increasingly focused on is trying to just make the rest of the country that isn't aware of us aware of us. When The Guardian set up shop in Australia in 2013, many in the industry were sceptical the progressive left-wing publisher would find big growth among the Australian news public. I was one of the sceptics. I'd been a reader and observer for some time and I thought the opportunities were probably limited by what I thought of as an ideological cap. Also, I suspected the UK-based publisher may have underestimated the difficulty of breaking into a news market that was already highly competitive and crowded. While that analysis would prove to be correct for other global entrants, for example, the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed News, which have now both exited Australia, I was wrong about The Guardian. It exploded out of the blocks and built audience quickly. That audience growth has slowed in recent years. And as you'll hear from The Guardian's Dan Stinton today, one of their main challenges is reaching more people. The fact remains that The Guardian's hybrid revenue model of contribution and advertising has proved remarkably successful and established a solid base for a big news presence in Australia. Welcome to Crawford Media with me, Hal Crawford. Thanks for having me, Hal. Uh, Dan Stinton, I'm the Managing Director for The Guardian in Australia and New Zealand. Well, yeah, look, I started out as a journalist and if I'm honest, not a very good one. Uh, what I realised quite early in my career working in WA was that uh, I really enjoyed the media industry, but probably didn't have the patience or, or sort of, I'm not sure, just the qualities that are, that, are, that are essential to be a really good journalist. But I really enjoyed the commercial side of things, digital was just starting to have an impact on the industry like it was a lot of other industries at the time. And so I went and did an MBA a few years into my career as a journalist and, and used that as a bridge to go over to the to the commercial side of, of the industry. But yeah, I think having a background in journalism uh, has really helped, particularly in my current position because you know, The Guardian is a, an organisation which is genuinely all about the journalism where I think most of your listeners would know, but we're owned by the Scott Trust. All of our profits are reinvested back into journalism. And so having a having a background in journalism and a really strong appreciation for it is a, is a really big help when you're in my current position. I think it's also worth mentioning that The Guardian at times takes a principal position on things which uh, result in us earning less revenue. One of the probably the most obvious examples is we've, we've got a ban on taking advertising from fossil fuel uh, companies and that costs us a fair amount of money. So if you're not sympathetic to uh, the, the journalism and the mission of our journalism, you're going to find it a pretty frustrating place to work. But the flip side to that is if you, if you, if you do buy into it, it's a, it's a really rewarding place to work. So is that how it works? You work within certain constraints, for example, you won't take that kind of advertising. Uh, but within those constraints, your mission is to maximise revenue? Yeah, I guess in simple terms. I mean, I work very closely in Australia with our, with our editor, Lenore Taylor. The church and state divide at, at The Guardian is absolute, so I have exactly zero influence over what uh, Lenore decides to cover and how she decides to cover it. And my role in, in simple terms is just make as much money as we, as we can in order to fund more journalism uh, and, and keep growing the size of, of Lenore's newsroom and, and our newsrooms globally. The two most uh, significant revenue streams for us by some margin are uh, reader revenue in various forms and uh, and advertising. 
about 60% of our revenue uh, comes from from reader revenue in, in various forms. There's, there's subscriptions and, and voluntary contributions, the, the two main ones. Uh, and about 40% of our revenue comes from advertising. And both of them are changing quite quickly in different ways. What's the difference between a, a contributor and a subscriber? I think if you take a step back and you look at people's motivation for wanting to become a supporter, whether that's a contributor or a, or a subscriber to, to any news masthead, there's a cohort of people which are purely transactional. In our experience, that's actually a relatively small cohort. So that's people that are, that are purely coming and subscribing to a masthead because they want to read a specific article or series of articles and therefore they subscribe. And because of The Guardian's position, we have a, a position which we, we basically want our journalism to be open and available to all, including those that can't afford it. We, we, we feel quite strongly that we don't want journalism to become the domain of the middle and upper class, which uh, you could see, you could say that that is happening to some extent. So we want our journalism to be open and available to all, but we still appeal to people uh, to support our journalism simply on that basis. So we, we ask people to support, if they support what we do and they like what we do uh, and they believe in our journalism, then we ask them to make voluntary contributions. That is the vast majority of people that support us. And by the way, I don't think it's actually that different to what you see from the New York Times or even the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age uh, or The Australian. It's the primary motivation in the messaging for, for people to support us is if you believe in our journalism and you want to support it, then then uh, please support us by taking out a subscription or in, in our case a contribution. So I don't think we're actually that different to other media masters, not as different as other people assume. So there's there's those two cohorts. There's a the transactional cohort and there's the and there's the kind of people that want to support what you do. And the, and the supporter cohort in our experience is much larger than the transactional cohort and therefore we've been able to grow the business really substantially. Mm. But the other part of this which is relevant is there is also a cohort of people, I guess loosely in that transactional element, which value curation uh, and are prepared to pay for curation. So uh, we've got a product in Australia now. Uh, it's a weekend edition. It's a it's an app. Uh, it doesn't have a huge uh, number of subscribers to it, but it is only available to subscribers. And what that does is it takes all of the best journalism from the Guardian over the last week, and it and it delivers that in a in a weekend format. And we're experimenting more and more with different curation models and charging for those models. Dan, what's the percentage of people who who read the Guardian who end up being contributors? Oh, it's very low. Uh, you, you test me here, out, but I, th I think it's about 2% just over. So it's a very small proportion, uh, and yet it's about 60% of our revenue. And do you find that 2% scales reliably as you grow audience, or does the percentage go down? Yeah, it's relatively consistent, actually. So um, we, if you take the last two years, for example, like the first year of the pandemic, we saw a huge spike in our audience. We were reaching about 12.5 million Australians, so about half the country. And what we saw is that the conversion rate of the audience at that time stayed relatively consistent. It did come down a little bit, but it was relatively consistent. So we saw a huge bump in people that were supporting us as well as reading us. So yeah, for us, I mean, this is this is probably our biggest challenge or biggest opportunity, I guess, if you look at it that way. If we continue to grow our audience and it's been pretty consistent growth uh, over the last 10 years or nine years, if we continue to grow our audience, we're very confident that we'll continue to grow our supporter base and and become a, a much much larger newsroom and, and much more substantial part of the debate as we go. Right. So there are no really substantive downsides to growing that audience. No. I mean, look, our, our biggest challenge is that uh, still about half the country hasn't heard of us or hasn't, hasn't heard of us unprompted. So what we're increasingly focused on is 
trying to just make the rest of the country that isn't aware of us aware of us. I mean, we're still only nine years old. We haven't had the benefit of a print newspaper landing on people's doorsteps or in news agents for decades like some of our competitors have. And so there's just an awareness issue, which obviously we're slowly overcoming that. We, we tend to average around six to eight million people reading us a month. Uh, and as I mentioned, it got up to about half the country at the height of the pandemic. But there's a lot of room for growth. And we're going to, because of that, you're going to see us actually taking a much more active role uh, in promoting The Guardian and uh, doing a lot more marketing to let people know that we're here. Because it's pretty clear that it's it's a pretty straight line, as I mentioned earlier. The more people that are aware of us, obviously, the more people reading our journalism, that's for the good in my area. The more people that are reading us, the more people that convert, and therefore, mm. the, more, the more revenue we're bringing in. The ideological positioning of your journalism is pretty clear. It is, it's a small L liberal left positioning, a, a lot of emphasis on social justice. Don't you think that there's a natural cap on the size of the audience that you might be able to reach with your content? I think if you're a really strong conservative, yeah, you're probably not going to identify with the kind of journalism that we do. But, I mean, a couple of points to make on that. That's not why we're here. We're here for our journalism and we, we've got a very proud history uh, of progressive journalism, both in this country and in the UK. And so even if there is a natural cap, I'm not sure if we care about that because we want to do the kind of journalism that we want to do first and foremost. I would also make the point that if you look at the result of the last election, there's a really sizable proportion of people that are small L liberals that may have been capital L liberal voters up until recently that are reading The Guardian because they also identify with our journalism. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was about Elon Musk's description <laughs> of The Guardian as insufferable. What is it about your publication that sort of incites that uh, that reaction in people? Oh, look, I never want to speak for Elon particularly lately, but look, I think he called us that in the context of, if I recall, we asked him some questions about the wisdom of smoking marijuana on a Joe Rogan podcast while he was under investigation from the SEC, and I think he, I think he didn't like that, that questioning. But look, I guess at the heart of it, the reason why people like Elon or anyone in a position of power might find us frustrating is because they're in a position of power and we ask them tough questions. I mean, that's the role of, of a journalist, right? So, and Elon is increasingly conservative from what I can tell in his worldview, so probably increasingly uh, has, a, has a different view to, to what, to what we're, we're about at The Guardian. Let's talk about the news media bargaining code. So, I've argued at length that I don't think that it's a, a valid mechanism. I think that the means don't justify the ends. Uh, mm -hmm. And you, you may be familiar with some of the arguments against the code. Tell me why why is the code uh, acceptable to you? Yeah, I mean, look, Hal, I've 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 listened to your take on this for a while now. I think we even spoke about it uh, for an article you wrote a while back, and so uh, appreciate your position. Obviously, respectfully disagree. Look, he here's the point, right? The in in our view and in the ACCC's view, evidently, there was two substantial benefits that Google and Facebook gained from our platform uh, from our content. Sorry that they weren't that they weren't paying for. So one was the engagement that all of our content in, in the aggregate delivers to both Google and Facebook. And the other was from all of the data they were able to extract from people engaging with our content on their platforms. And in the case of Google, also on our platform, because we all use their ad server. This was effectively a market failure because any one of us standing up and saying, we're taking our content off your platforms doesn't have any impact, but the collective value of all of our content is uh, is worth a lot to them. 
And so that's why I think it was worthwhile. It was it was a purely competition issue. I think it's been distorted a little bit with others with saying with other arguments, but really it comes down to the fact that it was a competition issue. There was a distortion in the market because of Google and Facebook's dominance. And we're in this really unique scenario where we are both reliant on Google and Facebook for traffic. They are, to use the words of the ACCC, unavoidable trading partners, and yet we compete with them in the digital advertising market where they extract data from us and engagement from us without paying for it. Mm. And so therefore, I think it's a it's a pretty clear market failure that they should have paid for. And the news media bargaining code, while imperfect in some ways, has been a pretty effective policy at, at getting uh, the platforms to pay most, not all, but most publishers uh, for their content. As a digital guy, Dan, I've got to ask you, do you buy the News Corp argument that the digital platforms were stealing news content? I wouldn't go that far, Hal, no. I, I, I don't think they were stealing our content. I just think that as the market evolved, the aggregate value of our content was worth a lot to Google and Facebook. The individual value of our content for any one publisher was not enough to make a difference for us to have any market power, and therefore it required government intervention to level the playing field. I don't think they were stealing our content. I don't think there was any ill will here, by the way, either from any of the plat- either of the platforms. I just think it was a, it was a market distortion. People are talking about Facebook and, and they're saying that Mark Zuckerberg is ready to walk away from news. Do you believe that? Look, I'm not close enough to know, so this is pure speculation, but no, I don't think that. I don't think that. I think in the context of their business where user growth has now stopped or at the very least slowed substantially and where Apple's changes with ATT and privacy enhancements has meant that $10 billion a year of, uh, of their advertising business has disappeared, I can't see them risking losing the engagement that news content provides to their platform. Look, maybe he'll prove me wrong, but I just think I can't see them taking the risk of, of removing news content from Facebook now because it mm. would result in even lower audience numbers and user numbers at a time where everything else is falling. I just think it would be a huge risk. Something that has crossed my mind in recent months is why wouldn't Facebook, a platform that was getting effectively beaten up in a uh, in a PR sense, why wouldn't they invest in news media in some way? Would you see that as being any kind of a uh, a smart business move on on the part of a global digital platform? Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent they were doing that, right? I think Google and Facebook both had different initiatives where they were funding uh, different projects from. Uh, for, with publishers. We were the beneficiary of that as well. The problem was it was just such small beer that it didn't make a difference. So how do you how do you think about platform ownership? Are you happy to be on Facebook? Are you happy to be on Twitter, TikTok? Okay. So look, I mean, to state the bleeding obvious, we obviously want people to come to us direct as much as possible, right? You, you earn a lot more money from those people. They're, they're more engaged with what you do. So we, like probably almost every other publisher around the world, has a strategy to grow our direct audience, people that are either coming to our website direct or have downloaded our app or have subscribed to our newsletters or follow our podcasts or whatever else. So that is a that is the core principle around what we do with all of our marketing efforts. We want more and more people to be consuming our content on our owned and operated platforms. I don't think we're unique there. So then you, you look at the digital platforms that are out there and they're all a little bit different, right? So we get about half of our traffic from Google. Uh, they're an unavoidable trading partner, as I mentioned before. I don't like that because they can change their algorithm at any time and, and potentially result in us receiving more or less traffic. 
but I mean, they've been relatively stable in recent years and uh, I think are probably a more reliable partner than than some of the others and therefore it is what it is. So we, we make our content available to them. I mean, you can't run a digital business now unless you make your content available on Google, right? It's just it's just impossible. They, they direct where traffic goes on the internet to such a large extent. Facebook is probably like that to a lesser degree. So therefore, same thing. We put our content on Facebook for that reason uh, and we use that as a as an opportunity to, to both promote our content and also to get more and more people to come to our own operated platforms and then you know you could have go down the long list after that i mean we're experimenting quite substantially on tiktok you would have seen or might be aware of matilda bosley's videos that we're running on tiktok a few of which have gone absolutely ballistic and viral and around the world uh, she did an explainer on afghanistan uh, mm. which i think at last count had about 60 million views around the world but we largely view those uh well as a as a means to get our journalism out to areas where and audiences which otherwise wouldn't discover us, and also as a marketing channel. Yeah, TikTok's an interesting one. It almost has all of the weaknesses of TV news amplified. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you mean, How? Give, 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 expand I, on that. I have been a TV news director, and I, I know the strength of TV news, which is the very big reach and powerful emotional sway that you can get into a minute 30 TV piece. Hmm. But they are really poor information vehicles and mm-hmm. the retention in the minds of the audience is very low and they sort of give an illusion of completeness, but they're not complete at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like the rest of news, but even more flawed. So that's TV news, but at least with a TV news bulletin, you have a kind of curated view of what happened in the world. Might be imperfect, but you know you are going to get a piece on Ukraine in there. Mm. as well as what what Albo's done today. On TikTok, it's a piece of news video exists much more in a vacuum, not a lot of context, uh, might be even shorter than a minute 30, uh, invariably is. Uh, And there is the same assumption that I'm seeing everything that I need to know, but it's even more incorrect. So that's the old man critique of TikTok. It doesn't seem to be a great vehicle for news to me. But, you know, I look forward to seeing people doing creative and good things there. Can I, can I give you just a couple of points of optimism, though, How? Because, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, by the way. You, you you can't get across really complex information. I mean, it's hard enough in a 600 to 800 word story, right? I mean, getting it across in a one to one and a half minute video is, is not impossible. But, but the one thing I will say is that typically the audiences that are on TikTok or uh, Instagram stories or, or you go down a long list – they are typically younger consumers. Younger consumers typically didn't read a lot of news anyway. And so you typically get to the point where you're in your late 20s, you're starting to have a family, that's when news engagement really spikes. So if this is, we kind of view this as a way of bringing audiences into the kind of journalism that we do and hopefully as they mature and and the value of news becomes more important to them, they'll come to our owned and operated platforms and get that context. And the other thing I'll say that that is I guess the the other bit of optimism is the other medium which is growing really strongly is podcasting, right? And young audiences in particular are consuming podcasts uh, at a really high rate. And that is a medium where you can get across context, probably in a way which is even more valuable than an 800-word article. And so therefore, we've got our full story podcast where we dive deep on one particular issue every day. That's a fantastic way for us to explain not just the news, but the context of the news and and give a bit of background to it. And that's growing really, really strongly. So if we can keep growing that channel, maybe these younger generations will will actually end up being better informed over time. But there's a long way to go. Yeah, you're right. And you're right to point out that uh, not everything heads towards the short and superficial. Uh, podcasting is 
it's a great medium. It's, it's, it takes a while to get to the information, but you not only hear the information, you hear the tone of people's voice. So you have an emotive uh, connection there as well. Mm. Tell me about commercializing podcasts. Yeah. So look, I'm a, I am a massive believer in podcasts and have been for some time. The economics of podcasting, certainly when compared with video, are just much better, right? So I've, when I was at Seven West Media, I, I built a whole strategy around video and we made a lot of money from it, but we had the benefit of all this, this fire hose of video content coming from Seven that we could make use of on, on different platforms, including on the West Australian. Uh, and that worked for us. But when you're a publisher like us, and you're t- choosing whether to invest a dollar in video in producing video or a dollar in podcasting, then it's much cheaper to produce really high quality audio content uh, in podcasting than it is in video. And so, therefore, we've uh, got a really substantial podcasting team now. Uh, we do about a half a dozen podcasts, uh, and we're going to be releasing a lot more over time. We pretty much sell those out now. Right, so we're pretty much at a hundred percent sell through on those, and the rates that you can charge, the advertising rates that you can charge on podcasting, are far higher than what you can charge just with display on online. And so, look, how, how do they compare? How do those? So, is it sold on a CPM model like like video advertising? That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, look to give you some context from around this, it, it varies depending on campaign and, and sponsorship and all kinds of things, but. You know, it, it's if you compare a sort of ten to fifteen dollar CPM direct sold campaign on the Guardian, you're getting about double that in podcasting. So you're getting up to thirty dollars CPMs on podcast ads. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it varies, right? I mean, some sometimes it's cheaper for longer for longer sponsorships and all kinds of things, but that's that's the rough economics of it. You just you're getting a lot more. And by the way, you should be getting a lot more because if you think about it from an advertiser's point of view, the engagement and the intimacy of an ad running on, in someone's ears is really high, right? I mean, it's a really, really valuable uh, advertising unit to, to, to get a hold of. Mm. And, and tell me, uh, I'm quite ignorant about these things, are your podcast ads served programmatically? The vast majority, the vast majority, almost all of it is sold directly with our sales team. So we do monetize a little bit of it with Acast, which is our, our technology platform. They, they sell a little bit of the unsold for us, but there's not much of it left, to be honest, after our... Uh, sales team uh, have taken it to market. So, and there's huge demand, right? There's there's huge demand for people wanting to advertise, particularly on Full Story, our flagship podcast. That there's just there's just not the inventory there. So, Dan, you started as a writer, and you said you're not a very good one, or you said you're not a very good journalist. So, somewhere in your soul, there's 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 a desire to write. That's what I would guess. And you made that decision to go over to the business side. How do you reconcile that creative side of your being with the financial side of those businesses? Well, the short answer, Hal, is I really miss it, to be honest. As much as I wasn't very good at it, I, I did enjoy the creative element of, of being a journalist and, and of writing, and I, and I miss that side of it. I think the reason why I've sort of reconciled it, if you like, is the creative appeal of, of strategy, particularly in the digital space, which is so fast moving, is I would regard that as also really creative. And so being able to be in a position where you're making decisions about the future of an industry uh, is is really inspiring in its own way. And also, I mean, how like we haven't touched on this, but I've I've also I did a startup for a period. I remain an investor and advisor to a few startups now. I, I really enjoy the the tech and startup side of things and being able to sort of create businesses out of nothing and get involved in that. So 
I guess the creative outlet comes from that rather than from the writing that it did previously. What's the hardest thing about your job? Oh, that's a difficult question now. Maybe I'll give you a couple of, a couple of answers to this. One part of it is just what we touched on earlier, and that is that I came from Seven West Media, third biggest media company in the country, huge reach, very established products. Uh, in some sense, it was easy. The difference at The Guardian is, as I said, we're, we're growing and have a decent audience, six to eight million people thereabouts, sometimes higher, but there's still a large proportion of the population that hasn't heard of us. And nine years feels like a long time. I know I haven't been here for nine years. I've been here for four. But nonetheless, nine years might feel like a long time, but it's actually tiny in comparison to our competitors. And so the biggest challenge is really just how do you make the rest of Australia know and care about us enough to read us regularly and ultimately support us? That's the, that's the most difficult part from a, com- from a commercial point of view. The other part that's difficult is probably also what we've touched on, and that is that The Guardian, because of the principal position it takes on different matters, uh, fossil fuel advertising, the high standards we have for our Guardian Lab-sponsored content, those sorts of things. It can be a pretty frustrating place to work at times because we say no to a lot of money, but we do so on the basis of protecting our independence and integrity. And in the long term, I truly believe it is for the good, it is, it is to benefit to us. But it is it is always a challenge. I mean, I think about some of the things that we did commercially at Seven West Media that we would never do here. And so, and that costs us money in the short term. So that that can be challenging, but I truly believe it's for the good. Mm. Interesting to hear that uh, your big biggest business challenge is uh, is effectively a marketing challenge. Have you got any great ideas? You're going to get a Guardian blimp. Look, there's there's a, there's a couple of things to say here. So we have largely relied on our journalism to grow so far, right? So we've invested more money in our journalism. That journalism distributed across the digital platforms, as as we've touched on, has largely resulted in our uh, audiences coming to us and growing. We're now at the point where that's not enough and we now need to reach people that aren't going to come across us in their normal channels. So we're about to do a really substantial marketing campaign. We'll be rolling this out uh, as of next month. Huge outdoor component, TV, cinema, digital, the whole thing. That's the first really substantial marketing campaign that we'll have have ever run. We're just finalizing the creative for this now. It looks beautiful. What's the key messaging? Uh, I don't know if I want to reveal that on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's probably trust. That's that's what all news brands go for. That's I'm guessing that it's around trust. uh, Look, I'll tell you. So, look, the the catch line that we are going to be going with in the first round of this is in the fight for progress, news needs a guardian. So we're leaning into our progressive position of our journalism and probably touching on some of the things that you know we've talked about today and that is that news is uh is pretty important and often hard to distinguish from all the other information out there so you can trust us to be the guardian of good news mm. Mm. great i should do a shout out here by the way to jocelyn abbey who is uh our new director of marketing and growth uh, or new ish been here for about six months uh joined us from the abc she's she's the one that's pulling all this together so first time we've ever done it before we ended the conversation Dan wanted to make a general observation about the forces currently shaping the world of digital advertising. I'd intended to drop this into the flow of our interview elsewhere, but to my mind, it sits right just here as the last word. I think it's important to take a step back and look at what's happening with advertising broadly, particularly with the privacy changes and the like that are coming. What's been obvious about the way that advertising has worked with publishers in the digital realm to date is that we've operated at all ends of the marketing funnel. So I'm going to use a bit of jar- jargon here, but hopefully it's relevant. So if you look at 
marketing from an advertiser's point of view, they typically, not all, but typically view this as brand advertising at the top of the funnel or direct response DR advertising at the bottom of the funnel. And publishers have typically done both, right? We've done the brand advertising at the top with high impact display units. And then because of cookies, we've largely enabled DR advertising as well to follow people around the internet and convert people to, to buy widgets. Now, what's clear, obviously cookies are going away and privacy regulation around the world is going to make it harder and harder for that DR component to continue. And so therefore, I think what is the, the clear direction of travel, publishers are increasingly going to be vehicles for brand advertising and not vehicles for direct response. And that's actually a good thing, right? Because if you look at what's happening with the DR component and with cookies, you've had two things happen. You've had advertisers able to reach audiences on uh, regardless of what publisher it is for very cheap uh, and really commoditize our advertising inventory in a way that it wouldn't have happened if we didn't have cookies. And even worse than that, it's also allowed some bad actors to be able to harvest an audience from a digital publisher in one regard, cookie them, and then buy that audience somewhere else at a cheaper level. So what's clear is that the DR component is going to become harder and harder for publishers to compete in. And so from the Guardian's point of view, at least, uh, we are leaning more and more into brand top of the funnel advertising. And by the way, that's what should, we should do because if you think of the engagement that someone has and the affinity that someone has for our brand, it is way higher than the affinity that someone has for Facebook, for example, or for any of the long table sites that Google serves advertising on. So therefore, I think for us uh, and I think for most publishers, increasingly focusing on the top of the funnel and the brand side of advertising is a good thing. The rates are better. And I'm actually quite optimistic about the future of digital advertising for publishers because of the fact that we're going to be increasingly forced to operate in this space. And that's, that's where we're going. Thanks a lot to Dan for taking the time to discuss his business and the central issues of news at the moment. If you enjoyed the discussion, I recommend you have a listen to the podcast I did last year with Margie Vary, The Guardian's former marketing director. That episode is called Money for Nothing. In the discussion, Margie goes further into the requirement of a strong ideological positioning to generate user contributions. The consequence of that requirement is a force pushing news outlets to more strident and clearly defined positions. Thanks for listening to Crawford Media. My name is Hal Crawford. See you next time.